This is Victoria Howard. I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Reed today, and we're actually going to be discussing her new novel, The Gossip's Choice. The Gossip's Choice follows respected country midwife Lucy Smith and her life and work in the year of the Great Plague. But as the year draws to a close, trouble brews when Lucy is accused of serious negligence. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Hi, Victoria. I'm good. Thanks. Are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Um, hope you're keeping well in these strange, strange circumstances. I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book today um, because I've followed a bit of your work before um, as in terms of your academic work. So I'm intrigued to know a little bit more about the, the book itself because it's a novel. So do you want to tell me what the book is about? Yeah, so the novel's called The Gossip's Choice and it's taken really from my academic research. So um, for my day job, I research the um, cultural representations of childbirth, of midwifery practices, of women's reproductive health and health in general. And there were so many characters and stories that I came across in the course of that, that it seemed to me that um, there was a story waiting to be told. Um, the midwife in my book, who's a central character called Lucy Smith, isn't a real midwife, isn't a historical figure. Okay. She's an amalgam of several historical figures right. rather than just picking one and, and trying to bring her to life. Mm-hmm. So I could mix and match the best bits I'd found along the way of all of them, really. Oh, that's a good idea. Because one person probably, there's so many different bits of other people's lives that you could squish in then, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. And I didn't want to um, also do a disservice, really, to a historical figure by, you know, <laughs> giving them thoughts and feelings they'd never had and things like that. So it was just mm. easier to start with a blank sheet and, and somebody I'd made up, I thought. Oh no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I like that idea. So it's set in 1665, is that correct? It's set in 1665, which most people will know as the Great Plague Year, the year before the Fire of London. Um, and it's in a town that's a couple of days' ride away from London. So there are connections to the capital. Mm-hmm. People travel back and to. And the plague is raging all the time throughout the novel. The um, Lucy's son, Simon, works in London as a master printer. Okay. And when it comes to June, he uh, the theatres have closed. He's a big theatre lover. So he goes. He thinks, well, you know, there's not much happening now. They close the print house and he goes back to the countryside um, to his parents for the rest of summer. And then there's all the tensions that you have there with an adult son, you know, coming home. People will recognise now, I'm yeah. sure. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he ends up staying in the local inn rather than in their house because he, he doesn't get on with his dad and uh, and this type of thing. So there's so much that's historical, but yet actually it's got so many parallels for today and the way we're going on. It's episodic in, in structure. So, um, you know, like um, if you watch BBC's Call the Midwife, you get a, a birth storyline in every episode well every chapter every couple of chapters you'll get a birth that Lucy attends and the different ways of um, helping women in their delivery the different um, medicines the different um, ways that she would assist a woman Mm. come to life in different scenarios and all of those cases even as bizarre uh, uh, as they might seem are from true accounts from um, a woman called Sarah Stone who wrote and published a midwifery guide in 1737 uh-huh. and she lived and worked around the Bristol area and then she moved to London and she published 40 or so case histories um, okay. they're very very brief so you get about 200 words um, outline of what happened okay. um, and they're always dramatic cases so you couldn't have her as your main midwife because everything would be a calamity you know mm. she'd be going from one to the other um, but they, they do inspire the stories um, you know 
that even the ones that seem outlandish to us now will be based on Sarah Stone's accounts. Oh, wow. So I guess you being um, in the job that you do, sort of the research of the history and the literature, that's really played in a huge part into this novel. Has it made it easier to, to, to craft a novel by using real sources or has that made it more difficult? No, it's, it has made it easier because, with, well, as I say, a typical entry from Sarah Stone's a couple of hundred words and to turn that into a 3,000-word chapter, obviously, leave you know, it's the best of both worlds. You've got the bare bones of the incident, mm. and then you can you can build your narrative around it. You need to flesh out the characters. You need to introduce backgrounds, mm. uh, and you need to make introduce a lot more detail. And that's where you marry the two sources. So I've got the bare bones from Sarah Stone's account. Then I would go back to other midwifery guys like Jane Sharks from 1671 and look at what cure she would give in that instance because um, she she goes into a lot more detail about what what remedy to mix mm. uh, and bring them all together and then by the end you've got a three thousand word chapter out of the bare bones of a two hundred word entry. Wow. Okay. So what inspired this novel then? What made you choose um, the specific period and the the topics of of the novel? My um, starting point was when I did my PhD into cultural representations of menstruation, mm. which somebody had to. <laughs> no, but it was, it was fascinating. And it turned out all these um, people's stories that needed to be told, really. And I think ever since then, it's been it's been bubbling away mm-hmm. uh, as, as, you know, a way of actually telling stories to a wider audience, people who wouldn't read uh, nonfiction, um, whether it's academic work or whether it's um, more creative non-fiction in terms of things like maids wives widows and maladies of medicine um, which tell stories in a really academic uh, sorry a really accessible way mm-hmm. but even so the the amount of people who want to read that as you know there's a finite number isn't there whereas the um, number of people who are interested in a historical fiction uh, is much greater and it yeah. seemed to be a great opportunity for me to do something I wanted to do and actually would then share the work with such a, a, a broader audience that's a really nice idea to to, to sort of marry the two I really yeah. like that yeah I like reading historical fiction um I, I didn't know whether I could do it um and I quite like having to go at things you know that are new and uh, um yeah but I knew I wanted to tell this story and actually when I was doing um, trolls through my old laptops there are several false starts there are there are two or three chapters in various files of the start of this novel so I think it was inevitably going to to come out uh, at some stage mm-hmm. and they go back you know um to 2009 <laughs> Yeah, it's been a long time coming then. Everything's been sort of formulating and and coming to the front. So how did you go about researching the book? Were there any particular sort of methods you used or any particular sources you definitely wanted to include? I wanted to include um, medical sources as much as possible. So um, things like when when we refer back to the plague, um, Simon comes home to the country town, it's called Tupingham, and he brings with him a newly printed book um, on plague cures. And it's been brought out at the King's Command by the um, College of Physicians because Charles II basically said to them, look, you know, this is a catastrophe. We need to have the latest cures. Mm. And the um, College of Physicians brought out this booklet of new thinking, which, you know, w- what worked from established thinking and what mm-hmm. else they could add to it in terms of remedies, in terms of behaviour. And there's things in there that are very, very um, prescient for today, like social distancing. Mm-hmm. 
like um, employing more medics. And there's even a, you know, um, a paragraph that says that when you employ doctors and persuade them to work in London, given how dangerous it is, then there should be a scheme brought in for their widows to have a pension if the doctor dies of the plague and things like that. So, yeah, so I could incorporate that and Simon could bring that home so that his father, who's an apocryphy, a chemist, um, Sarah Stone's uh, husband was a, an apocryphy. So that was quite a nice um, way of keeping the link to her. Mm. Um so that his father could read the latest from the Royal College. Um, so met a lot of medical sources make their way in. But I was amazed thinking that I, you know, know the era really well and I, I work in it. How many little bits and pieces you've got to research for a novel, you know. Um, yeah. How do people travel? Um, how long did it take to go anywhere on a horse? Or how long does it take to go in a coach? What about the postal service? Things like this, all these tiny things have all got, to be researched afresh, mm-hmm. things that I, you know you don't anticipate, um, funeral practices and, and all sorts of things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Actually, I remember I went to um, a, a talk. It's with uh, Hannah Gregg, who obviously does historical um, advisory for TV and films and things. Yeah. And one of the things that she mentioned, obviously, for, in terms of a visual aspect, was they were trying to figure out the 18th. I think it was for Poldark. They were trying to figure out the 18th century version of going to the fridge and looking in it, and you know, just sort of showing that this was someone's home. Oh yeah. So they figured out the way of doing that was to you know chuck some herbs in the pot over the fire and give it a stir. And I thought that was really interesting because just you just don't imagine these things, and especially when you're trying to create you know an, a world in someone's head or on screen, those those details really make all the difference, don't they? They do, yeah, they do. And 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 often though, when you're looking something, you find something out. It it means you've got to go back and adjust something else because that couldn't have happened, you know. Yeah. <laughs> things you assume are universal are not. So yeah, it's it's, it's um. It's incredibly um, interwoven, complex procedure, I, I discovered. <laughs> <laughs> but a pleasurable one? Absolutely, I loved it. And I've learned such a lot. Um, it means that when I teach, you know, we have a first year module on narrative forms, which is all about, you know, um, understanding what goes into a narrative and how to read it and how um, to read it crit- uh, critically. Um, teaching that this year, having written a novel, was so so um so much better in a way because i could think through um things from a from an author's point of view as well uh, oh. for the first time yeah definitely what about other sources i think really the the midwifery guys jane sharp in 1671 is the first named english woman to write a midwifery guide and so it was important i think to to have her her voice in the novel mm-hmm. and you know, she's quite forthright and she's got views you know you, you you're not allowed to to um sit up until a certain amount of time you're not allowed to move for four hours after you've given birth and and she's quite insistent on things like that so I wanted to get a sense of that in mm. um and you know she she's you, you hear although Jane Sharp's book is taken from people like Nicholas Culpeper and lots of other sources and she's patched them together her voice comes through quite a lot and and so I wanted to get a sense of that false rightfulness. And um, I think it was also important to get a sense of while these women like Sharp and like Stone are, are outspoken for their time and they forthright and they, they're not shy about their views, they still would have deferred to their husbands in lots yeah. of other ways. And I think that was quite a delicate process in the novel okay. to show that somebody like Lucy Smith is absolutely in charge in the birthing chamber. But when she's at home... Mm-hmm. Uh, and for example, when she gets some, uh, she gets a reward from the king 
for some t- for for a delivery of one of his far extended relations, and he sends her a little note with with some coins. And her husband says, "Well, you know, they've come into my house, so I'll decide what we're going to do with them oh. with the money." You know, things like that. Um, Did that feel quite alien to try and script? I guess because it's not what we have experienced, probably. No, exactly. Um, but I thought it was important in a way to, to to get that sort of thing in because to show that it would be normal as well for Lucy that she wouldn't think that you know he'd overstep the mark or and she does she feels a little bit um, conflicted and a bit resentful but she knows that it is his he's right you know yeah. they they of course um, they they were um, on Parliament side in the Civil War and although it's 1665 that's something else I wanted to get in the novel is this hangover um, you know you don't just forget your allegiances and. Mm-hmm. And her husband, who's called Jasper, she, she she's summoned to this birth of, of uh, somebody who, you know, a distant relation of the king. And of course she goes because the midwife says, you go if you're called. Um, but he's very conflicted, you know, because he thinks, well, I'd rather she didn't actually mingle with these people because you know, <laughs> they're not our sort. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that was something else that I hadn't really thought about until the writing process. But, you know, like even in current discourse, you hear, you hear people talking about, uh, the Second World War, even now, 70 years yeah. after it finished. And I'm writing sort of only, what, 15 years um, after it finished. So it, it it struck me more and more that these sorts of wounds and um, feelings wouldn't have gone away. Definitely. It's will be quite recent. Wow. Really, really interesting. So c- could you tell us a little bit more about sort of the expectations and uh, experiences, I guess, of 17th century pregnancy and birth. Because so, for so many of us, we just won't be familiar with what would have been expected or, or experienced at that time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing that's the main difference, I suppose, is that there was no sort of antenatal care as such. I mean, you might go and see your local midwife if you had a problem or, you, you know, you were worried about something. But generally, you, you know, you just book their services ready in advance, ready for when you we're going to go into labour so that she knew to expect a call from you. Um, so that that's quite, you know, because we're carefully monitored now with regular appointments and scans and things like that. And and you wouldn't necessarily know that, you know, for certain that you were pregnant until quite a way further on in the pregnancy, till about four months when they felt the baby start to move. Then you would know for sure. I mean, you, you might well have known you were pregnant for yourself, but to have that confirmation... Um, would, wouldn't have come really until you'd quickened, as they call it, when you felt the, the little flutterings. Um, so that's quite different. And giving birth, I mean, the, the, everybody in, so every woman gave birth in an upright position unless she was poorly. So that could be on a chair, a birthing chair. Would, would the woman literally just sat on bottom down, legs, sort of feet planted on the floor, or would legs be up? That's right. They're quite low so that her feet can, bear, you know, brace against the floor when she okay. needs to push. And the midwife would sit either on a stool or crouched in front of her uh-huh. to, to, to take delivery of the baby at the right time. And the midwife would take that chair with her. And that ah. would be hers, you know. Um, and so it'd go from house to house. Quite and, an investment then to get one of those made. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but um, in where you haven't got access to um, a special chair or a special stool, uh, women gave birth sitting on the edge of their bed quite commonly. And that's where your gossips came in. So, you know, the title, The Gossip's Choice, mm-hmm. is, is partly taken from the fact that gossips are the birth attendants. It's a name for the women who stand and sit with you throughout okay. the labour. And one of the gossips' job was to sit behind you and prop you up, you know, like, like a chair back. And that, you know, when you think about it, this started to become really um, real to me. 
was just how involved the gossip role was and how physical and how tiring it must have been actually mm. you know, to have been there for the whole of her labor hours and hours perhaps you know helping the woman walk up and down in a chamber in early labor um because people were very active in in early labor mm. uh, and then when it came to delivery you know even even in a chair you'd be they'd be stood behind her you know rubbing her back rubbing the belly down um, making sure she was warm, making sure she got something to eat and drink, you know, um, if the midwife said it was okay. Uh, so, so the importance of the gossip was something that came out to me more and more um, as I was thinking about the book. And it was a reciprocal role as well. So, you know, you, your friends and your neighbours and your mum maybe would be your gossips and then you'd in turn be their gossips. And so, the, you know, it's a community thing. That's really lovely. So is that that's obviously where the, the title for the novel came from? Mm. That that um, was Lucy was the choice of the, the women's community to be their midwife, I presume. That's right. Yeah. So she's the gossip's choice because she's the best midwife around. She's the one that they all go to. But then when things come go a bit wrong later on in the novel, she becomes the centre of some gossip, which is a very uncomfortable feeling for her. So it's got a double meaning. You know, ah. she becomes the gossip's choice because she's the centre of the town gossip. Oh, I like it. Mm. <laughs> is there a big difference for you in writing fiction and non-fiction? Obviously, the end product is is expected to be very different, but is there a different process for that? Uh, yeah, I think, well, there are lots and lots of similarities, you know, pausing to go up and look up for a reference and things like this that we know about in academic writing. But what I found that in fiction writing is that you can it can flow more because you you know you you're writing from your imagination um mm -hmm. and so that was different so I could sit of an evening when I've got a free uh, couple of hours when everybody was in bed and I had that that window and it became a routine where I would sit and write for a couple of hours solid every evening um, until it was done and then there was a tremendous amount of editing because I'd never written fiction before and I worked with some brilliant editors I worked with one pre-submission because I wanted my manuscript to be in the best form it could. But even after that was done, I still didn't know whether it was just going to be something that I'd wanted to do and for me. And then I could say, well, I've done that. And then, you know, it could sit on a file in, on my desktop. But actually, the the, um, the woman who edited it and um, a couple of friends who saw parts of the early bit said, no, 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 let's, you need to publish this. And that, yeah. so that gave me the confidence, really, to, to go forward. And then I teamed up with um, Wild Press and Tracy, the editor there, who's the commissioning editor, but also taught me through the edits, taught me such a lot about the craft of fiction writing, you know, mm. when you need to add in some more description. Because, of course, as academics, we're used to paring things down and getting to the point and being quite precise yeah. with language. And that doesn't work in fiction because people need to have that. Um, as you said, they need to be drawn into it, don't they? With, with, with like going to the, the equivalent of going to the fringe uh, and seeing how they live their life and what they're having for their tea. And uh, and this is all quite important. Yeah. Well, very important for a novel because you want people to actually immerse themselves in that world. And it's very far removed, as you say, from our world. So they need to have cues, don't mm. they? And I could see Lucy's house. They live in the apocryphy shop. The shops at the front, the house about. I've been to places like that, so I knew it inside out. Of course, my reader doesn't, and somebody had to tell me. You know, we know that you. We can tell that you know this place, but you know, you need to show it to us, and and so things like that. Yeah. So it was like it was a learning process, but it was hugely pleasurable. Well, it must have been because you're planning a sequel to this novel, aren't you? 
<laughs> I am. Yeah, I, I'm. Um, I'm about ten thousand words into the sequel, um, and it does some of the things that this novel was going to do when the story took over. Because nobody told me that when you're writing a novel, characters come to life and do things of their own accord that you hadn't planned that they were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> So I discovered that as well, that these are actually real people who live in your head and on the page. Oh, I love that. So the novel didn't do the things that I thought at the start it was going to do. So they're planned for the sequel. So really what I had was two stories. I hadn't quite realised that. Mm -hmm. And so the second story is going to be told. And I've moved that on slightly to after the Great Fire. Um, So it starts in autumn 1666, whereas the other one finishes in the January of that year. Okay. So what was the easiest part of writing? You, you just mentioned that some of the characters, they, they come to life and they, they do things and their story and what they want kind of takes over. Mm. What was the easiest part of, of pulling it all together and, and making that narrative that worked as a novel? Um, I think for me, it was the fact that it was episodic. So with a birth, you can you can bring people in who might have no further role to play in the in the novel because they're, they're there for a birth mm-hmm. but then you have got a whole pool of people who can come out later on if they if it's useful to have somebody mm. and also I could go back and, and put people in earlier but for me it that the easy part was having this pool of births that I could draw on uh, from Sarah Stone's case notes yeah and so if you know if there'd been too much storyline and the narrative was taking over mm-hmm. and you have to think that you know if you remember this is the story of a midwife I think we haven't had a birth for two chapters we need to have one dive into Sarah Stone, see what happened mm. there, see if you can you can pick a birth that works in the scenario you've got to now uh, and and do that. Um, so for me, yeah, the, the birth stories were, were the easy part and the joyous part to, to do. Mm. And, and on the flip side then, what, what was the hardest? What difficulties did you experience in, in the creation process? She's the supreme authority in a birthing chamber, but she's not in life. Um, also showing the way that um, prayer and religion is incorporated into everyday life Mm. this is a highly religious society it's not something that's an add-on it's not a performance it's inside them you know so the fact that you know that they they do reflect and they do um, pray and to make that a natural part of um, of the process so to imbibe her character with that instinct to do that um, Mm. things like that which doesn't you know um, as as somebody without a faith that, that needed handling carefully and, and um but taking my inspiration from Jane Sharp who who does it all the time in her book you know she she cites scripture when it's appropriate she mm. um she rails against men midwives saying well there's not one word in the bible that says men can be midwives so they shouldn't be and that you know they should keep their noses out but she uses scripture as her source of authority for that Whereas Sarah Stone um, rails against men being midwives too but for her it's modesty for, you know, it's not right for men to be taking over in the birthing chamber because you know it's 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 not modest. Mm. Whereas Sharp's both things apply. She doesn't like men being in the birth chamber for that reason, but primarily it's because there isn't a word about them in the Bible, and so there. And obviously, all the scripture informs daily life and dictates how you do things and how you act and everything. So yeah. Yeah, and, and sort of, you know, the first thing she does on attending a birth, and I, I don't reproduce this in every birth, obviously, um, but, you know, she would say a prayer. Yeah. That that was normal, <laughs> um, which makes sense when you think about 
um, the, you know, the fact that the religion was part of who she was. Um, and when, you know, if she's going to, there are some harrowing births in there as well as all the, the joyous ones. There's some harrowing ones there. And when she just needs a moment before she's got to do a procedure, naturally she says a little quiet prayer to herself and, and, and it gives her the steel and the resolve um, to carry on, you know. I guess that, that will probably speak to a lot of people, knowing how sort of dangerous birth um, could be for a woman at that time. That, yeah, you, you just want to draw on a bit of strength from wherever you get it. And if faith is so important to you, that's naturally mm. going to be where you, you first go. Yeah, absolutely. And but that, that that brings us really to another thing that I wanted to get over in the novel is the fact that most births were fine. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> birth could be dangerous. And yes, you would know somebody if, you know, if one woman in a hundred was 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 to die in childbirth, you would know if somebody, wouldn't you? We've all got circles of contacts. Yeah. Um so the risk of, of dying, you know, was less than ten percent over your um, you know, six to eight children was sort of average. Mm. But that doesn't mean you would know somebody. So there was a lot of fear about that, you know, it could happen. And there were specific prayers for you to think about, as you know, as, as your pregnancy was drawing on. Um, but it does mean that the majority were, were fine, doesn't it? And yeah. that is one of the major differences, I think, between then and now, is that when something went wrong, the, there was very little chance of correcting it. You know, if you start to have a massive bleed or things like that, then you are going to die. But over 90% of births didn't have that happen. They might have had minor complications or anything like that. Um, and But, you know, most women were fine. And I think that was important to get across sort of um, urban myths or, or people's misconceptions um, take over, really. And that's another reason why you wouldn't want to use Sarah Stone's case notes as your only source because she only uses 40 cases out of a a 30 plus year career and they're the most dramatic where she swooped in and saved the day Mm. and it would give an entirely wrong perception of of what it was like to give birth then. In the current situation it probably feels a bit close to home but um, in the the era of of the plague I I just wanted to see a bit more about um, what you discovered about people's experiences of going through that. Mm. What I um, wanted to get over, and I had no idea that we would be living through something like it when I was writing it, was a sort of background worry. And now I completely get it. You know, that's sort mm-hmm. of um, Lucy gets a knot in her stomach quite often when she thinks, you know, will the plague come to Cheapingham? Because it hasn't. And that's the way plague was as well. You know, it, some towns would have really high infestation rates and some it would bypass mm. um, as it moved around. So, um, for example, in Loughborough, where I work, they, they were visited by the plague you know, several times, and certainly in the Great Plague of 1603, which was the biggest before the 1665 one, they were affected. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have hit there in 1665. So, um, so Lucy had this sort of worry in, even though even when she wasn't necessarily thinking that it was about that, um, in, in you know that she lived with. Mm. Um, but in terms of daily life, um, when Simon decides to come home, he's got to go to the mayor's office for a travel pass, a certificate of health. Um, and he has to queue up for three hours in the sun with other people who want to flee and everybody who can deserting the city. And it's not until the end of the novel that it reflects whether actually that was a you know, was a sensible thing to do because although it undoubtedly saved his life, you could have brought it with you, couldn't you? <laughs> you know, yeah. so social distancing and things like that. And then um, the husband decides he usually goes to London once a year to catch up with the Hippocrates Society 
um, to meet up with colleagues. Mm-hmm. And um, because he's a, you know, he's a bit of an awkward zone, so he always goes in winter when most people wouldn't want to be travelling on the roads. But that's his custom. Um, and then he debates for quite a long time, you know, to and fro about whether it's whether he should go. Um, but by winter, the, you know, the plague figures aren't aren't anywhere near as dire yeah. as they were. But one other parallel between then and now is, you know, how we get every day the figures, and we all sort of reflect on the huge numbers that we're seeing every day. This was very similar to 1665 life, where the bills of mortality were published every week. Mm. So one week in August, something like 3,800 Londoners died of the plague, and other weeks it would be 300, and or you know, or more figures that you could imagine. But that week, particularly when it was so many thousands, that again comes to life when you think when I tune into the the briefing, you know, in the afternoon and see what the latest figures are. And that's something that I could only have imagined as a, you know, vaguely when I was writing, but now I'm living sort of with. Uh, yeah. And that's that's really interesting. And I do wonder, you know, if I was writing it now, would I over-egg that because I'm living with that anxiety and those feelings now, uh, whereas early modern people had regular outbreaks of things like that. And they also lived with other contagious and deadly diseases like smallpox. Mm. So was it different for them? And I, 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 I would, you know, so would you play it down? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, to think about how this experience of these last few months and lockdown would change how the characters in the novel behaved. Definitely. That is very, very interesting because I, I myself, I'm, I'm trying to avoid all of that. I'm, I'm not watching the briefings. I'm trying not to go on social media because it, it gets to you. It gets too much. And when that was what everyone was talking about, much like we are today, oh, yeah. it's very difficult to avoid that and not to let it encroach upon your life. Um, so, yeah, I wonder how, how different that would have been if you'd been sort of crafting the 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 piece now yeah I think, I think that I think it might have well have taken much more centre stage or you know been the foreground rather than this sort of background worry that that had it at um yeah but we we won't know <laughs> and now the opening of the gossip's choice 16 year old lady Ellen McAlstone lay on her bed drifting into sleep it had been a gruelling two days and nights as she struggled with every ounce of her being to give birth to the much-desired Carlstone air. Her face was pale with exhaustion, her hair matted, and her eyes glistened whenever she was roused to open them. She'd heard it came to Carlstone Manor as part of Lady Eleanor's dowry and boasted Charles II amongst those who'd reposed in it, not that this was on either hers or the young woman's mind at present. It's competition time. Sarah has kindly agreed to give away a copy of one of her other books, Maids, Wives and Widows, which explores the everyday lives of women in early modern England. Take a look at what they ate, their jobs, what fashions they were interested in, their health and even their role as mother. You just need to answer this simple question. What is a gossip? Send your answer to editor at thecrownchronicles.co.uk by 9pm British summer time on the 10th of July. Good luck!